So, without further cliche, Professor Geoffrey Allenson, Professor Emeritus of Clinical Pharmacology, um, would you like to tell us whether antibiotics will make us pregnant? Yeah, well. <coughs> <coughs> Who would like antibiotics to make them pregnant? Any volunteers here? <laughs> anybody, anybody want it? Uh, there's the title. Uh, and there's Robin, who is a co-author on this work. And actually, of course, the title should really be that. Uh, because I'm going to talk about a putative interaction of antibiotics with oral contraceptives primarily. And this starts in 1971 with a paper in the German literature from Reimers uh, and a later paper by Reimers again in 73 and then somebody else's paper in 74, all in the German literature, saying that this drug rifampicin, <coughs> you can see at the top, which is used to treat tuberculosis, Incidentally, named after the French film Rififi. Anybody seen Rififi? Du Rififi chez les hommes, or chez hommes, is a, a film by um, Jules Dassin, which is about a robbery in Paris. It won the jury prize at Cannes, and it's how Dassin met Melina Mercuri and made his career. <coughs> and the people who first isolated the rifamycin antibiotics from a particular organism called the culture after rififi. And they called them rifamycins. And so rifampicin is an AMP derivative of the rifamycins. That's why it's called rifampicin. So what, what they showed was that there is an interaction of rifampicin with the oral contraceptive. <laughs> And this made news in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1974. There's a picture of Reimers. And this annotation tells you that if you give rifampicin to people who are taking, to women who are taking the oral contraceptive, you get breakthrough bleeding or spotting. And some women had absence of bleeding after discontinuation of the pill, but had breakthrough bleeding in the following cycle, which is a bit odd. And even some women became pregnant despite taking the oral contraceptive. Now the mechanism of this interaction is well described and totally agreed upon. Nobody has any difficulty about accepting that this is a true interaction. My old professor David Graham Smith gave a, a public lecture some years ago talking about this kind of interaction. He said there are certain drugs which are enzyme inducers, I'll come back to that, and they will reduce the amount of contraceptive you have in your body and you may therefore become pregnant. And a woman in the front row went, oh my God. <laughs> but it does happen. And here's the, the mechanism. This is from a much later paper, but it shows you that rifampicin or rifampin as the Americans call it, uh, reduces the amount of estrogen. The EE on the slide there is ethanol estradiol, one of the common estrogens used in oral contraceptives. <clears throat> you can see that when you add ampicillin, after 14 days, the concentrations of the ethanol estradiol reduce by about 50%. 
And the same is true of another member of that group, rifabutin, which is another rifamycin. The effect is less, but nonetheless it occurs. And rifampicin is probably one of the most potent enzyme inducers. It increases the metabolism of drugs in the liver by increasing the amount of enzyme. And there are many enzyme inducers which do exactly the same, although to different degrees. And they all tend to reduce the efficacy of the oral contraceptive. And the first sign is mid-cycle spotting. You're in the middle of your cycle, you've had a period here, you're expecting a period there, and in the middle you get a little bit of bleeding. That's the first sign that your contraceptive is failing. And of course pregnancy is the most dramatic sign that your contraceptive has failed. Now, in 1975, this GP, Jill Dossiter at the top there, wrote a letter to the BMJ, and the BMJ headed it, Drug Interactions with Oral Contraceptives. And what she said was, it's well known, see if I can get this, it's well known that there are drug interactions with these drugs, barbiturates, rifampicin, phenylbutazone, or phenytoin, they all can act as enzyme inducers. I'm not sure about phenylbutazone being there, but the others are certainly enzyme inducers. And then she says, but I have seen three cases, three patients who uh, became pregnant when they were given ampicillin. And she wonders if there might be an interaction with antibiotics that are not enzyme inducers. The BMJ clearly had pregnancy on its mind because it followed that with another letter about the Dalcon shield, which is also problematic, but in a different way. So, <clears throat> at about the same time, in fact in the same month, November 1975, as Jill Dossiter wrote her letter, a group in Finland, Adler Kreutz and his colleagues, had published data on the excretion of estrogens in the urine of women who are pregnant. And for some reason, they had studied the effects of ampicillin. And this is what they found. Here you have the pregnant women excreting all these different estrogens. These three are probably the most important. And here they are. These are conjugated estrogens. I'll come back to that in a minute. <clears throat> Here they are after ampicillin. Huge increases in the excretion in the feces of conjugated estrogen. Now, why is that important? Well, there is a mechanism that I'll come back to. But remember that ampicillin increases the excretion of conjugated estrogens in the feces. This seems to be a highly variable effect. These are three patients from another of their papers, were actually reproduced in the contraception paper, but taken from another paper, showing that there is huge variability in this effect. And they've demonstrated here three individuals, one of whom has an increase in, this time, plasma unconjugated, estradiol unconjugated, one who has no change and one who has a fall. So there is a huge variability, one assumes, in the extent to which conjugation and unconjugation or deconjugation occurs in different people. Uh, how this translates into the general population, I don't think anyone knows. 
These are just three cases that they showed. But it does suggest that there's huge variability, and that would not be surprising if this is a bacterial effect, if ampicillin is in some way affecting bacteria in the gut, and we all have very different microbiomes, the families of bugs that live in our gut. So variability would not be surprising. So here's the mechanisms. We have, <clears throat> on the left, we have the normal events for estrogens when you take a dose of the pill. First of all, the ethanyl estradiol, which is the usual estrogen in the pill, is absorbed from small. The people who drew this diagram missed out intestine. Not pill, but intestine. So the ethanyl estradiol is absorbed, you swallow it, it's absorbed from the gut into the systemic circulation. It's then metabolized in the liver, where it is conjugated, joined to glucuronic acid and sulfate, primarily in the liver, also in the intestine. <coughs> Drug that isn't conjugated goes to the organs where ovulation occurs and prevents ovulation. But drug that is conjugated is excreted via the bile back into the gut, where bacteria deconjugate it so that it can be reabsorbed, topping up the amount of estrogen you have in your body. So the two mechanisms whereby this could potentially be altered is enzyme induction. You increase the amount of metabolism, and so you get less of the estrogen in the body as a whole. It's excreted as inactive metabolites. Or, if that doesn't happen, an antibiotic in the gut can inhibit the bacteria that deconjugate the estrogen after it's been put from the bile into the gut and reabsorbed. The deconjugation process necessary for reabsorption is inhibited by removing the deconjugating bacteria. And so, you, again, you get less drug in the body. And that's the importance of the enormous increase in conjugated estrogens in the gut, in the feces, after the administration of ampicillin. The, the implication is that ampicillin has inhibited the bacteria which would normally deconjugate the, the, the estrogen, and so the conjugated estrogen rises enormously. The estrogen is not reabsorbed and you lose the effect of the estrogen. So that is the supposed mechanism. Okay, <clears throat> so now this is a picture of the first issue of the British National Formulary, which is now the standard text that all prescribers use as their first go-to to determine how they should prescribe a medicine. You'll find it on the desk of every general practitioner, or at least online on the screen, when they're prescribing, and they'll look up the British National Formulary. If you go to a coroner's inquest, the coroner will say, what does it say in the BNF? <laughs> or you go to a trial, they'll say, what does it say in the BNF? There are other sources of information, of course, important sources, but this is one of the major sources of information. And here's the first issue from 1981, and all the extracts I've, I'll show you from the various issues of the BNF are taken from the actual hard copies that I've collected over the years. That's why the, the quality is not awfully good, because the quality of the original print is not very good. 
So here's the extract from the 1981 number one issue on interactions of drugs with oral contraceptives. And you can see it gives you two sets. One is the drugs that I've mentioned already, barbiturates, phenytoin, rifampicin, and so on. All these drugs are enzyme inducers. And there is total agreement that that reduces the effect of the pill, without doubt. Notice this drug, Griseofulvin. I'll mention it briefly later, it's an antifungal drug, not an antibiotic, not an antibacterial drug. Uh, rifampicin is the only antibacterial drug on this list. That's antifungal, and the rest are used for other purposes. But then it says, oral antibiotics, brackets, not enzyme inducers, such as ampicillin and tetracycline, reduced effect, risk probably small. And what the risk was thought to be is not clear. I don't think anybody really knew, and I think nobody still knows what the risk is, if there is a risk at all. <clears throat> so that's 1981. By 1988, when this paper was published, the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, actually its predecessor, which was called the Medicines Control Agency, has gathered a whole lot of isolated reports coming in from here, there and everywhere on yellow cards. You can fill out a yellow card. There used to be actually physical yellow cards available. GPs would have them and they'd fill out a report saying, I suspect that there has been an adverse effect in this case, or an adverse interaction in this case. And the yellow card would go into the MCA, the Medicines Control Agency, and a whole set of reports would be gathered together. And Alistair Breckenridge and his colleagues in Liverpool looked at all of these in 1988, and they found that there were 63 reports of uh, alleged interactions with antibiotics and oral contraceptives, compared with only 43 for anti-epileptic drugs. Now, of course, there's reporting bias in this, and why people should want to send in an individual report or not send in an individual report is not clear. And probably less than 10% of all incidents are actually reported in this way. So it's, a, it's difficult to assess the quality of the data. But nonetheless, you can see there were more reports of putative interactions with antibiotics than there were with the anti-epileptic enzyme-inducing drugs, which is suggestive. So now we come to the BNF of 1992, 24th edition. It's published twice yearly. And now, for the first time, the information is increased from the minimal information that you saw in the first issue. It took a long time. And it says, in the case of combined oral contraceptives, some broad spectrum means they cover a wide range of organisms. Antibiotics, for example, ampicillin, may interfere with estrogen absorption. It's not quite right. It's estrogen reabsorption after deconjugation, but get the point. <clears throat> and it doesn't tell you what the mechanism is supposed to be. It just says interferes with absorption. And it says if you're taking a short course for seven days after, and for seven days after stopping, take extra precautions, because your pill may not be as effective. If the course exceeds two weeks, resistance develops, and again, they don't say what the mechanism is. But that's the advice being given in uh, 19, 
can't remember, huh? 1992. Okay. And this, per this information persists until 2010, when the information is expanded for the first time. And here's the information given in 2010. And it tells, tells you again that there is a possible interaction while taking a short course or for se and for seven days after stopping. And that if the course in this case exceeds three weeks now, not two, I don't know why they've changed that, they say that the bacterial flora develop antibacterial resistance. So the problem that was started by ampicillin, say, or tetracycline inhibiting the bacteria is no longer a problem because the bacteria are no longer inhibited and grow back. And so the status quo is restored. And they say, in addition, that this may also apply to patches and vaginal rings. Although there's not a lot of information about that, actually, if you look for it. So that's 2010. But already in 2009, just before the publication of that BNF, the WHO had looked at the data and had decided that there was no evidence of an interaction. And this is their fourth edition of the medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use. And you can see that at the top, broad-spectrum antibiotics, most broad-spectrum antibiotics do not affect the contraceptive effectiveness of combined oral contraceptives. This is a curious statement because they say most antibiotics, which suggests that maybe some broad-spectrum antibiotics do, but they don't say which, even if they think that some might. So it's hard to know what that means. Uh, I also draw your attention to the second entry on antifungals. No clinically significant interactions, but you'll remember that I told you that griseofulvin, which is an enzyme inducer, is an antifungal agent. So there is evidence of at least one antifungal agent that has an interaction which they seem to have ignored in this survey. I won't go into the others, but they do mention rifampicin or rifibutin, the, um, the metabolism and so on. <coughs> so that's 2009, too early, or too late rather, for the 2010 issue of the BNF to pick that up. But the following year, in 2011, this group from the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Healthcare of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists published a report in which they echoed the WHO advice. And well, this is what they say. They say, uh, rifampicin-like drugs, enzyme inducers, that are the only antibiotics that are enzyme inducers have consistently been shown to reduce serum concentrations of ethanol estradiol. With the other antimicrobial agents, penicillins, tetracyclines, macrolides, fluoroquinolones, and imidazole antifungal drugs, which I'm not going to talk about, which are not enzyme inducers, the mechanism is supposed to be through inhibiting colonic bacteria, but they say there is no evidence to prove such an interaction. What they mean is there's no evidence to prove such a mechanism for such an interaction. But they've made that kind of leap 
without really considering the evidence properly, in our view. Anyway, that's what they said. There's no evidence. <coughs> then they go on to say that previously, well, we weren't sure, and so we were precautionary. It's a big event, becoming pregnant, if you hadn't intended to be. Life-changing. So why wouldn't you take precautions in case for a two-week course of antibiotics it might change your life? Wouldn't you take precautions? But no, they say, we don't think it's necessary. That alone, to me, is worrying. Even if I, even if I agreed with their assessment of the evidence, I'd be worried about that. Because as long as there is a smallest doubt, proving a negative is not possible, and that's what they're assuming. They're assuming that the negative has been proven and that precautions are not needed. So that alone gives me pause. And they then mention that the WHO has already said this, as I've shown, and the US medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use have agreed, they've adopted the recommendations, so they feel that they should do so too. And Later that year, in September 2011, the BNF picks this up and says latest recommendations are that no additional contraceptive precautions are required. I was on the British National Formulary Committee at that time. And normally, what would happen is that the pharmacists on that committee would bring suggestions to the committee for ratification. That didn't happen. They just put this in straight from the college Royal College of Obstetricians guidance without consultation, as far as I can see. I may be wrong about that. And I was very upset about this when I heard, I said, this is, this, even if the, even if the evidence is the way it is, I would still recommend taking precautions. Why not? But there you are. And that is, I think, in the current guidance. So, what was the evidence? Well, the college divided the evidence into two types, direct and indirect. This is the direct evidence. Several studies looked at combined hormonal methods have not demonstrated a decrease in levels, concentrations of ethanol estradiol. I'll come back to that. It's an important point. <coughs> Small non-randomized studies, no effects on pharmacokinetics. Small prospective non-randomized studies failed to show any effect on gonadotropins, the hormones that, con that control certain aspects of pregnancy. And three small randomized trials suggest that those two drugs may not affect. And when we look at those trials, this is the number of individuals in each of the trials. The study number is, you see, the top one is 57 to 59, so that's those three references and so on. You can see the three randomized trials are 64 to 65. They have a total of 54 subjects in all. That's 27 in each group. Tiny study. You could not conclude from this that there was no interaction. I, mean, I don't know what the power of these studies would be, but it ain't going to be very high. So the direct evidence is not very good. Uh, I want to have now an interlude to discuss the question of whether all women would be affected by this interaction if it occurred. Because the assumption has been, looking at the evidence that the WHO and the Royal College of Obstetricians has quoted, 
that every woman would be affected, and that is generally the case with interactions. If I give you a drug that induces liver enzymes, then there will be variability from individual to individual, but everybody will have some enzyme induction to some extent, and everybody will therefore be at risk of some sort. Some will be more affected than others, of course. And the distribution of risk will be a normal distribution, generally speaking. And the general assumption is that adverse interactions behave in that way. That although there is variability, everybody is at risk of some degree or other. That doesn't necessarily happen with some interactions, and it is particularly not the case when bacteria are involved because of the huge variability in bacterial flora in our guts. And this is an example that demonstrates this. So it's an interlude from oral contraceptives. <clears throat> and this is a report of an interaction of digoxin, which is, we don't use nowadays very much, if at all. It's a cardiac drug, with an antibiotic erythromycin. And in this case, it caused toxicity. This is the first case report that this is so, and this has proved to be a correct assumption that this drug erythromycin can, in some women, cause, or in some men indeed, in some people, cause digoxin toxicity. And it does it by changing the metabolism of digoxin in the gut, mediated by a bacterium called Eubacterium lentum. And this bacterium is responsible for changing the structure of digoxin to inactive compounds. So here's the structure of digoxin. It looks like a steroid. This bit here is a steroid. So it's not unrelated to the estrogens and progesterones, although the three-dimensional structure is different. And this bit of the molecule is called the genin. So it, the whole molecule is digoxin. This bit is called digoxygenin, because it gives rise to the whole, whole molecule. These things each are glucose-like molecules. And so the whole structure is known as a cardiac glycoside. It's a drug that acts on the heart and has glucose-like molecules in it. And this group of compounds, there are many of them, are called cardiac glycosides. So digoxin is a cardiac glycoside, and as it's metabolized in the body, each one of these glucose molecules is snipped off. Now usually when you metabolize a chemical, it makes it less potent. But in the case of the cardiac glycosides, removing each of the molecules of glucose-like molecules increases the activity of the drug. They become more potent. But if you change this bit here by reducing the double bond, putting hydrogen molecules on, you reduce the activity. So there are varying changes in the activity of the molecule depending on which bit of it is metabolized. And when you add, <coughs> when you put it in the presence of the eubacterium, you get a whole load of, active, uh, of inactive compounds. Sorry, here's the normal metabolism to a, vari a, a variety of active compounds. You put in the eubacterium, 
and you get inactive compounds. If you inhibit the eubacterium, you get more active compounds and therefore toxicity. Only 10% of people are subject to this interaction. About 20 or 30% have the bacterium, and with the variability, about 10% actually get the interaction. So this is a very good example of how interactions with bacteria, where an antibiotic changes, in this case the metabolism of a drug, only affects a small number of individuals, in this case about 10%. does not affect everybody. And even of those whom it affects, not everybody is going to be at risk of toxicity because of the variability in those individuals. So what I wondered in relation to the numbers of individuals who had been studied in those studies I show you before, how many such individuals would you need if you wanted to demonstrate that there was an interaction? Most interaction studies only have a dozen or so people. 24 was the most in those studies I showed you. Is that enough to show an effect if it affects, say, only 10% of the population? Now, you'll know the answer to that straight away. It's obviously far too few. But I thought I'd do the sums just to convince myself. And what I've done here is to set up the putative results of a randomized experiment. And I've said, right, we've got a group of women who are taking the oral contraceptive. I'm going to give half of them an antibiotic and the other half a placebo. They'll be double blind. Nobody will know what's going on. And then I'm going to watch and see how many of them become pregnant and how many of them don't. Not an ethical experiment, but just a thought experiment. And I want to know how big is X. If one of the women in the placebo group becomes pregnant, because people do become pregnant, despite taking oral contraceptives. And if one-tenth of the women in the antibiotic group become pregnant, because that's the risk, 10%. So here's some numbers. I've said, well, suppose I studied 30 women, 15, uh, 30 in each group, bigger than any of the other studies. And one of them in the placebo group became pregnant. Three of them, 10% in this group, became pregnant. You might say that should be four because there's one there and one should be there, but you know, roughly. What do you get? Well, there's the chi-square, nowhere near significant, as you all doubtless expected. So my question to you is, how many people should I study in this paradigm if I want to find a p-value less than 0.05? Anybody got any ideas? Anybody want to make a suggestion? 500. 500? In each group, or 250? In total, 250 in each group. Yeah, any advance on that? Any, anybody? Is that, does that sound right? <laughs> Sounds good, Susanna says, yeah. Roughly. Yeah, it's not bad, actually. It's not a bad. I, I've doubled the numbers here. 60 in each group, and it just almost gets to be significant. And I really want better than that. So 250 in each group, yeah, it might be. Could be. It's that sort of order. 
we need 100, 200, 300 in each group before I'm going to expect to detect this effect. On the assumption of a 10% risk, it might be less than that. The risk might be less. Might be one, one in a hundred. Still be important to that one individual. And how many millions of women take contraceptives and some of them come for a course of antibiotics because of a urinary tract infection? So you need quite a lot. Uh, one of my colleagues in the department in the statistics group said, well, she said, if you wanted to do a study in which you gave advice to women about what they should do when you gave them an antibiotic, you'd need a huge study to determine whether there was an interaction in that scenario. This is a much simpler scenario. I'm actually counting, I'm watching them day by day and counting the pregnancies. If I just gave them advice to take extra precautions, you'd need a much bigger study to determine whether your advice was helpful or not. And that's the practical problem, actually, in a way. How do you advise women what to do? So not very good, the direct, so-called direct evidence. And then there's some indirect evidence, and I'm not going to go through it in detail, but they have seven pieces of indirect evidence, and we've analysed these pieces, and none of them is very strong. They're all circumstantial or uh, illogical in one way or another. I just want to uh, put up the first one of these. It's the statement that women who have had a colectomy and ileostomy have no enterohepatic circulation because the, there's no deconjugation, no, uh, no excretion or whatever. That's supposedly the, the idea. So you get drug, conjugated drug excreted and not deconjugated because there's no deconjugation going on. There's no gut to do it. And yet the efficacy does not appear to be reduced, they say. Well, actually, that's not true. There's a, a letter here and a, a study later showing that this does, in fact, reduce the amount of, uh, the amount of uh, estrogen that you have in your body. Equally important, and the reason I put this up, is because it makes a statement that nobody, I think, has considered. And that is that in these patients they studied who were given uh, antibiotics, there was a change in sex steroid binding globulin. Now all the studies of estrogens in these, uh, all the work that's been done in these studies, has been on total estrogen concentrations. Not the unbound concentration, it's the unbound concentration that's active. So it's possible that you might have no change in total estrogen concentration, but a change in a small fraction of unbound concentration, which would be important. Nobody has ever considered that, as far as we can see. Incidentally, it's, estrogens are not bound, ethanol estradiol are not bound to globulins, they're bound to serum albumin, but about 98%. So if I, I usually, when I'm teaching students about this, I talk about my pocket money problem. My father comes home with a hundred pounds in his pay packet. Well, nowadays it's a thousand or whatever. A <clears throat> hundred pounds in his pay packet. He gives my mother 98 pounds to run the house and he gives me two pounds pocket money. One week he comes home and he says, Jeff, I'm sorry 
we've got extra expenses, it's not very much, your mother needs £99 this week. And I say, you what? You've just reduced my pocket money from £2 to £1. A 50% reduction in my pocket money for your £1 extra expense in the over 98. And the, I say, that's devastating. Same is true of bound and unbound. If your drug is 98% bound, then a small change in the unbound can produce an enormous change in effect. And that could easily happen with ethanol estradiol, which is 98% bound to serum albumin. That has not, to our knowledge, been studied. Another important point about all these studies is that <coughs> they have chosen to look at surrogate markers. They've looked at total ethanol estradiol concentrations as a surrogate marker, although they don't seem to appreciate it, for unbound ethanol estradiol. And that in itself is a surrogate marker for the action of the oral contraceptive and for pregnancy, which is the important outcome. So nobody has done a study of pregnancy outcomes. So we thought we ought to do that. And we go back to the yellow card reports that I mentioned before, with all the problems that they entail. And now, instead of sending in yellow cards by post, you can fill it in online. All the data have been gathered together, digitized, whatever, and you can get it all through the MHRA's website on this website called Interactive Drug Analysis Profiles. And the internet, these, this uh, Interactive Drug Analysis Profiles tell you we have received 60,000 reports on this drug and there are 2,000 cases of headache, 3,000 of this, 4,000 of that, 100 of the other. And you can add them all up and see if there are any differences. So we decided to look at unintended pregnancies as an outcome in this database. And we chose to amalgamate the data from nine broad-spectrum antibiotics. There they are listed. And we chose two comparative, comparator groups. We chose negative controls. We took nine drugs at random from a formulary. And these are all drugs that women of a childbearing age might from time to time be expected to take for one reason or another. Citalopram is an antidepressant. Ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory drug. Lanzoprazole is for, let's call it, dyspepsia, and so on. Paracetamol. Theophylline for asthma, Zolpidem to help you sleep, whatever. <clears throat> so these are our negative controls. We would not expect these drugs to make you more susceptible to pregnancy when you're taking the oral contraceptive. And then we looked at a, a group of positive controls. These are the enzyme inducers that we know should increase your risk. So we expect these 12 drugs as a group to increase the risk of unintended pregnancies compared with the controls. That's our expectation. If we don't find that, then there's something wrong with our study. We don't know what the relationship between these two groups would be. So that's what we're trying to find out. And we are, in fact, trying to prove the null hypothesis that there is no interaction of antibiotics with supposed oral contraceptives through the measure of unintended pregnancies. 
We've also looked at a range of events, adverse events, not merely unintended pregnancies, that's our outcome of interest. <clears throat> We've looked at two negative events, negative control events, cardiac arrhythmias and headache. We do not expect any of the three groups to affect these at all. They're negative controls. We've looked at congenital abnormalities. This is a positive control. We expect that the enzyme inducers should increase the risk of congenital abnormalities. We expect that. If we don't find it, then there's something wrong. Because not all of the enzyme inducers, but quite a few of them, are known to cause congenital abnormalities. So that's our positive control. And then we've got a confounder, or a potential confounder, in the mix. Diarrhea. Because if an antibiotic causes diarrhea, it may hurry the, the pill through the gut and you don't absorb it. And diarrhea is known to be a risk factor for failure of the pill. So we're, if we see an interaction or an effect of diarrhea, then that might be a confounder for our antibiotics effect might explain, explain the apparent effect of antibiotics. It's due to diarrhea, not due to the mechanism of inhibiting the deconjugation. So that's why we chose all those. And we could have chosen others, but there's only so much time in the day. So now, what were the results? There they are. There's the controls. Just look at the unwanted pregnancies. Five out of 60,000 reports. Five out of 60,000. Unintended pregnancies. I should say these, these are data we got on our first passage through the, the database. We've since updated them with the latest and the results are very similar. Here are antibiotics, 45 out of about the same number, 68,000. So that's many times more than with the controls. And here's our positive controls, 39 out of half the number. So you try doubling that, 78 roughly, out of 60,000. So you're beginning to see the pattern emerge. You might also want to look at the congenital abnormalities, 819. And I'll show you 179 with the antibiotics and 234 with the controls, so many more with the enzyme inducers as we expected. So here's the summary, 5, 45 and 39. Mm, hard to know what's going on, diarrhea certainly isn't increased. We thought, we were a little surprised, we thought the antibiotics might increase the risk of diarrhea, it doesn't seem to. And the, why the enzyme inducers are lower I don't know, but I suspect that the confidence intervals are quite wide on that, I'll show you that. And nothing much again with the cardiac arrhythmias. The congenital ones, clearly a, a signal coming from the enzyme inducers and not much from the headache. So when we look at these per 100,000, we can see that the ratios for the antibiotics is about eight times the controls and 14 times for the enzyme inducers. So we have the expected effect with the enzyme inducers, a very large effect, and that's the answer to our question about antibiotics. Not as big an effect, but nonetheless an effect. And the confidence intervals on the raw data do not overlap. It's really quite striking.
And here's the congenital abnormalities. The signal comes from the enzyme inducers and not from the antibiotics, as expected, which is what it should be. And if we hadn't seen that, we would have doubted the result. But that's what comes out. And the others really are nowhere. The ratios are all under one, one or less. So we think that this is, uh, and there's the, there's the data highlighted. So we think this is evidence of an interaction, and certainly one that constitutes a signal that ought to be looked at further, perhaps in other databases. There are, of course, problems with the database. These are spontaneous reports, people just sending in reports when they see something happening, and there is undoubtedly going to be a risk of reporting bias. But we think that the positive and negative controls we've used minimizes the risk of that, but we can't rule it out entirely. But the data do suggest that antibiotics increase the risk of unintended pregnancies. Certainly the evidence that there's no risk is very weak and in our view ought to be disregarded. Unbound concentrations should be measured if you're using that particular surrogate marker. And whatever you think, actually, <laughs> it's our view that the precautionary principle should apply. And there is the precautionary principle. I'll read it out. If an action or policy has a suspected risk, a suspected risk of causing harm in the absence of consensus, the burden of proof falls on those taking that action. In other words, the burden of proof that there is no interaction falls on the obstetricians. And while they cannot prove it definitively, the precautionary principle, in our view, should apply. QED. Thank you.